Section 49 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 3. Progress of Scientific Chemistry in France, Part 6. After Lavoisier had satisfied himself that air is a mixture of oxygen and azote, and that oxygen alone is concerned in the process of calcination and combustion, being absorbed and combined with the substances undergoing calcination and combustion, it was impossible for him to avoid drawing similar conclusions with respect to the breathing of animals. Accordingly, he made experiments on the subject, and the result was published in the memoirs of the Academy for 1777. From these experiments, he drew the following conclusions. 1. The only portion of atmospherical air which is useful in breathing is the oxygen. The azote is drawn into the lungs along with the oxygen, but it is thrown out again unaltered. 2. The oxygen gas, on the contrary, is gradually, by breathing, converted into carbonic acid, and air becomes unfit for respiration when a certain portion of its oxygen is converted into carbonic acid gas. 3. Respiration is therefore exactly analogous to calcination. When air is rendered unfit for supporting life by respiration, if the carbonic acid gas formed be withdrawn by means of lime water or caustic alkali, the azote remaining is precisely the same in its nature as what remains after air is exhausted of its oxygen by being employed for calcining metals. In this first paper, Lavoisier went no further than establishing these general principles but he afterwards made experiments to determine the exact amount of the changes which were produced in air by breathing and endeavored to establish an accurate theory of respiration to this subject we shall have occasion to revert again when we give an account of the attempts made to determine the phenomena of respiration by more modern experimenters lavoisier's experiments on perspiration were made during the frenzy of the french revolution when robespierre had usurped the supreme power and when it was the object of those at the head of affairs to destroy all marks of civilization and science which remained in the country his experiments were scarcely completed when he was thrown into prison and though he requested a prolongation of his life for a short time till he could have the means of drawing up a statement of their results the request was barbarously refused he has therefore left no account of them whatever behind him but seguin who was associated with him in making these experiments was fortunately overlooked and escaped the dreadful times of the reign of terror he afterwards drew up an account of the results which has prevented them from being wholly lost to chemists and physiologists seguin was usually the person experimented on a varnished silk bag perfectly airtight, was procured within which he was enclosed except a slit over against the mouth, which was left open for breathing, and the edges of the bag were accurately cemented round the mouth 
by means of a mixture of turpentine and pitch. Thus everything emitted by the body was retained in the bag, except what made its escape from the lungs by respiration. By weighing himself in a delicate balance at the commencement of the experiment, and again after he had continued for some time in the bag, the quantity of matter carried off by respiration was determined. By weighing himself without this varnished covering, and repeating the operation after the same interval of time had elapsed as in the former experiment, he determined the loss of weight occasioned by perspiration and respiration together. The loss of weight indicated by the first experiment being subtracted from that given by the second, the quantity of matter lost by perspiration through the pores of the skin was determined. The following facts were ascertained by these experiments. The maximum of matter perspired in a minute amounted to 26.25 grains troy, the minimum to 9 grains, which gives 17.63 grains at a medium, in the minute, or 52.89 ounces in 24 hours. The amount of perspiration is increased by drink, but not by solid food. 3. Perspiration is at its minimum immediately after a repast. It reaches its maximum during digestion. Such is an epitome of the chemical labors of Monsieur Lavoisier. When we consider that this prodigious number of experiments and memoirs were all performed and drawn up within the short period of twenty years, we shall be able to form some idea of the almost incredible activity of this extraordinary man. The steadiness with which he kept his own peculiar opinions in view, and the good temper which he knew how to maintain in all his publications, though his opinions were not only not supported, but actually opposed by the whole body of chemists in existence, does him infinite credit, and was undoubtedly the wisest line of conduct which he could possibly have adopted. The difficulties connected with the evolution and absorption of hydrogen constituted the stronghold of the phlogistians. But Mr. Cavendish's discovery that water is a compound of oxygen and hydrogen was a death-blow to the doctrine of Stahl. Soon after this discovery was fully established, or during the year 1785, M. Berthollet, a member of the Academy, and fast rising to the eminence which she afterwards acquired, declared himself a convert to the Lavoisierian theory. His example was immediately followed by M. Fourcroix, also a member of the Academy, who had succeeded Macure as professor of chemistry in the Jardin du Roi. M. Fourcroix, who was perfectly aware of the strong feeling of patriotism which at that time actuated almost every man of science in France, hit upon a most infallible way of giving currency to new opinions. To the theory of Lavoisier he gave the name La Chimie Francaise, French chemistry. This name was not much relished by Lavoisier, as in his opinion it deprived him of the credit which was his due, but it certainly contributed, more than anything else, to give new opinions currency, at least in France. They became at once a national concern, and those who still adhered to the old opinions were hooted and stigmatized as enemies to the glory of their country. One of the most eminent of those who still adhered to the phlogistic theory was M. Gaetan de Morveau, a nobleman of Burgundy, 
who had been educated as a lawyer and who filled a conspicuous situation in the parliament of Dion. He had cultivated chemistry with great zeal and was at that time the editor of the chemical part of the Encyclopédie Méthodique. In the first half volume of the chemical part of this dictionary, which had just appeared, Morveau had supported the doctrine of phlogiston and opposed the opinions of Lavoisier with much zeal and considerable skill. On this account, it became an object of considerable consequence to satisfy Morveau that his opinions were inaccurate and to make him a convert to the anti-phlogistic theory for the whole matter was managed as if it had been a political intrigue rather than a philosophical inquiry morveau was accordingly invited to paris and lavoisier succeeded without difficulty in bringing him over to his own opinions we are ignorant of the means which he took no doubt friendly discussion and the repetition of the requisite experiments would be sufficient to satisfy a man so well acquainted with the subject and whose mode of thinking was so liberal as Morveau. Into the middle of the second half volume of the chemical part of the Encyclopedia Methodique, he introduced a long advertisement announcing this change in his opinions and assigning his reasons for it. The chemical nomenclature at that time in use had originated with the medical chemists and contained a multiplicity of unwieldy and unmeaning and even absurd terms. It had answered the purposes of chemists tolerably well while the science was in its infancy, but the number of new substances brought into view had of late years become so great that the old names could not be applied to them without the utmost straining, and the chemical terms in use were so little systematic that it required a considerable stretch of memory to retain them. These evils were generally acknowledged and lamented, and various attempts had been made to correct them. Bergman, for instance, had contrived a new nomenclature confined chiefly to the salts and adapted to the Latin language. Dr. Black had done the same thing. His nomenclature possessed both elegance and neatness and was in several respects superior to the terms ultimately adopted but with his usual indolence and disregard of reputation, he satisfied himself merely with drawing it up in the form of a table and exhibiting it to his class. Morveau contrived a new nomenclature of the salts and published it in 1783, and it appears to have been seen and approved of by Bergman. The old chemical phraseology, as far as it had any meaning, was entirely conformable to the phlogistic theory. This was so much the case that it was with difficulty that Lavoisier was able to render his opinions intelligible by means of it. Indeed, it would have been out of his power to have conveyed his meaning to his readers, had he not invented and employed a certain number of new terms. Lavoisier, aware of the defects of the chemical nomenclature, and sensible of the advantage which his own doctrine would acquire when dressed up in a language exactly suited to his views, was easily prevailed upon by Morveau to join with him in forming a new nomenclature to be henceforth employed exclusively by the antiphlogistians, as they called themselves. For this purpose they associated with themselves Berthollet and Fourcroix. We do not know what part each took in this important undertaking, but if we are to judge from appearances, the new nomenclature was almost exclusively the work of Lavoisier and Morveau. 
Lavoisier undoubtedly contrived the general phrases and the names applied to the simple substances, so far as they were new, because he had employed the greater number of them in his writings before the new nomenclature was concocted. That the mode of naming the salts originated with Morveau is obvious, for it differs but little from the nomenclature of the salts published by him four years before. The new nomenclature was published by Lavoisier and his associates in 1787, and it was ever after employed by them in all their writings. Aware of the importance of having a periodical work in which they could register and make known their opinions, they established the Annales de Chimie as a sort of a counterpoise to the Journal de Physique, the editor of which, Monsieur de la Mestrerie, continued a zealous votary of phlogiston to the end of his life. This new nomenclature very soon made its way into every part of Europe, and became the common language of chemists, in spite of the prejudices entertained against it, and the opposition which it everywhere met with. In the year 1796, or nine years after the appearance of the new nomenclature, when I attended the chemistry class in the College of Edinburgh, it was not only in common use among the students, but was employed by Dr. Black, the professor of chemistry himself, and I have no doubt that he had introduced it into his lectures several years before. This extraordinary rapidity with which the new chemical language came into use was doubtless owing to two circumstances. First, the very defective, vague, and barbarous state of the old chemical nomenclature. For although in consequence of the prodigious process which the science of chemistry has made since the time of Lavoisier, his nomenclature is now nearly as inadequate to express our ideas as that of Stahl was to express his yet at the time of its appearance its superiority over the old nomenclature was so great that it was immediately felt and acknowledged by all those who were acquiring the science who are the most likely to be free from prejudices and who in the course of a few years must constitute the great body of those who are interested in the science two the second circumstance to which the rapid triumph of new nomenclature was owing is the superiority of Lavoisier's theory over that of Stahl. The subsequent progress of the science has betrayed many weak points in Lavoisier's opinions, yet its superiority over that of Stahl was so obvious, and the mode of interrogating nature introduced by him was so good and so well calculated to advance the science, that no unprejudiced person who was at sufficient pains to examine both could hesitate about preferring that of Lavoisier. It was therefore generally embraced by all the young chemists in every country, and they became, at the same time, partial to the new nomenclature, by which only that theory could be explained in an intelligible manner. When the new nomenclature was published, there were only three nations in Europe who could be considered as holding a distinguished place as cultivators of chemistry. France, Germany, and Great Britain. For Sweden had just lost her two great chemists, Bergman and Scheele, and had been obliged, in consequence, to descend from the high chemical rank which she had formerly occupied. In France, the fashion, and of course almost the whole nation, were on the side of the new chemistry, 
Macaire, who had been a staunch phlogistian to the last, was just dead. Monet was closing his laborious career. Balmet continued to adhere to the old opinions, but he was old, and his chemical skill, which had never been accurate, was totally eclipsed by the more elaborate researches of Lavoisier and his friends. Delamethaurie was a keen phlogistian, a man of some abilities, of remarkable honesty and integrity, and editor of the Journal de Physique, at that time a popular and widely circulating scientific journal. But his habits, disposition, and conduct were by no means suited to the taste of his countrymen, or conformable to the practice of his contemporaries. The consequence was that he was shut out of all the scientific coteries of Paris, and that his opinions, however strongly or rather violently expressed, failed to produce the intended effect. Indeed, as his views were generally inaccurate, and expressed without any regard to the rules of good manners, they in all probability rather served to promote them to injure the cause of his opponents. Lavoisier and his friends appear to have considered the subject in this light. They never answered any of his attacks, or indeed took any notice of them. France, then, from the date of publication of the new nomenclature, might be considered as enlisted on the side of the antiphlogistic theory. The case was very different in Germany. The national prejudices of the Germans were naturally enlisted on the side of Stahl who was their countryman, and whose reputation would be materially injured by the refutation of his theory. The cause of phlogiston, accordingly, was taken up by several German chemists, and supported with a good deal of vigor, and a controversy was carried on for some years in Germany, between the old chemists who adhered to the doctrine of Stahl, and the young chemists who had embraced the theory of Lavoisier. Gren, who was at that time the editor of a chemical journal, deservedly held in high estimation, and whose reputation as a chemist stood rather high in Germany, finding it impossible to defend the Stalian theory as it had been originally laid down, introduced a new modification of phlogiston, and attempted to maintain it against the anti-phlogistians. The death of Gren and of Weigleb, who were the great champions of phlogiston, left the field open to the anti-phlogistians, who soon took possession of all the universities and scientific journals in Germany. The most eminent chemist in Germany, or perhaps in Europe at that time, was Martin Henry Klaproth, professor of chemistry at Berlin, to whom analytical chemistry lies under the greatest obligations. In the year 1792, he proposed to the Academy of Sciences of Berlin, of which he was a member, to repeat all the requisite experiments before them, that the members of the academy might be able to determine for themselves which of the two theories deserved the preference. This proposal was acceded to. All the fundamental experiments were repeated by Klaproth with the most scrupulous attention to accuracy. The result was a full conviction on the part of Klaproth and the academy that the Lavoisierian theory was the true one Thus, the Berlin Academy became anti-phlogistians in 1792, and as Berlin has always been the focus of chemistry in Germany, 
the determination of such a learned body must have had a powerful effect in accelerating the propagation of the new theory through that vast country in great britain the investigations of gaseous bodies to which the new doctrines were owing had originated dr black had begun the inquiry mr cavendish had prosecuted it with unparalleled accuracy and dr priestley had made known a great number of new gaseous bodies which had hitherto escaped the attention of chemists as the british chemists had contributed more than those of any other nation to the production of the new facts on which lavoisier's theory was founded it was natural to expect that they would have embraced that theory more readily than the chemists of any other nation but the matter of fact was somewhat different dr black indeed with his characteristic candor speedily embraced the opinions and even adopted the new nomenclature but mr cavendish new modelled the phlogistic theory and published a defence of phlogiston which it was impossible at that time to refute the french chemists had the good sense not to attempt to overturn it mr cavendish after this laid aside the cultivation of chemistry altogether and never acknowledged himself a convert to the new doctrines dr priestley continued a zealous advocate for phlogiston till the very last and published what he called a refutation of the anti-phlogistic theory about the beginning of the present century but dr priestley notwithstanding his merit as a discoverer and a man of genius was never strictly speaking entitled to the name of chemist as he was never able to make a chemical analysis in his famous experiments for example on the composition of water he was obliged to procure the assistance of mr keir to determine the nature of the blue-colored liquid which he had obtained and which mr keir showed to be nitrate of copper besides dr priestley though perfectly honest and candid was so hasty in his decisions and so apt to form his opinions without duly considering the subject that his chemical theories were almost all erroneous and sometimes quite absurd end of section forty nine recording by lawrence trask mount vernon ohio interface audio dot com